Welcome to The Greg Bennett Show. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And today I have a delightful conversation with Paula Finley. In this episode, Paula describes her journey into the sport and her fast rise to the top. And she discusses the effects of being a 21-year-old on top of the world and all the expectations that went with it. And it hasn't all been smooth sailing. Paula's dealt with multiple stress fractures all over her body and anemia and body image issues, but she's kept her passion alive. She's worked with various coaches to try and find the right path, but finally, now with her coach, Paula Souza and a partner, Eric Lagerstrom, she's in a great place. And you can just hear it in her voice. It's been a journey, but, but she's there. We discuss her incredible performance at the Challenge Daytona PTO Championships and just so much more in this one. Now, real quick, before we go on, you'd be doing me a huge favor if you could take a moment to subscribe and share um, and even a review on Apple Podcasts would be absolutely wonderful. You can find the show notes, the timestamps, coupon codes, and all the links at bennettendurance.com forward slash media. I hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did. And remember, success comes to those who endure just one moment longer. I'm so grateful for the continued support of the show from these incredible sponsors. You really do need to have these products in your life. Personally, I use each of them daily. Athletic Greens, Nutritional Beverage, hyper Ice Recovery Tools, and the Glutathione Supplement, Continual G. What I love about Athletic Greens is its simplicity. It's delivered straight to your door and it takes seconds to mix with water. It tastes great and goes down easy. And I know I'm getting the most comprehensive nutritional beverage on the planet in one quick drink. If you're looking for one product that has as much high quality nutrients in it as possible, then you want to consider Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is more than just a multivitamin and multimineral. It takes it to the next level adding a daily dose of superfoods, probiotics, greens blend, and more to support the gut health, energy, immunity, and stress. And right now, Athletic Greens is giving you, my audience, a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula. You'll receive one year supply of vitamin D and five travel packs for free with your first purchase for additional immune support. Many of the population are vitamin D deficient, including myself. I focus heavily in getting in the sun throughout the day, but when I can't, I religiously supplement with vitamin D. Adding vitamin D to your daily routine is just a great way to support vitamin D production. So if you're looking to get more out of your multivitamin and invest in your immunity, energy, and gut health, then you'll struggle to find anything more comprehensive than athletic greens. Take ownership of your health today and receive comprehensive nutritional insurance, a free year supply of vitamin D, and five free travel packs with your first purchase by visiting athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Now, you'll hear me mention Normatec and Hypervolt from Hyperice in several of the conversations with my guests in this show. Many of my guests and I are using these recovery tools religiously. You really must have them in your house. Sit in a pair of Normatec boots at the end of a long day. Use the Hypervolt percussion massage device to warm up muscles and loosen hot spots before working out or anytime you have a niggling injury. They're just so easy and they're so quick and they work. Their vibrating foam rollers, thermal technology and Normatec compression systems just help you warm up faster, recover quicker and simply move better. Seriously, these products are the perfect Christmas gift for any family member or good friend. Get $50 off all percussion devices now, no code needed, and get an additional 10% off with code GREG10. 
10 at hyperice.com. That's hyperice.com, H-Y-P-E-R-I-C-E.com and use code GREG10 for 10% off. I have a web address for all of my listeners who already know that one, the human body makes the most powerful antioxidants on earth. Two, the master antioxidant your body cells make is called glutathione and the human body needs glutathione to live. Three, the reason I'm addressing a select group of listeners with this web address is that once you see what these scientists in my hometown, Sydney, have accomplished, it'll blow your mind. Go check out continualg.com, continualg.com. That's C-O-N-T-I-N-U-A-L-G.com. Check it out and let them know that I told you about it. All right, today's guest is one of the most incredible stories of perseverance. Ten years ago, she burst onto the world triathlon scene in dominating fashion, winning five world triathlon series events in a 12-month window as a 21-year-old. After those events, she dealt with several almost career-ending injuries and spent the better part of a decade rebuilding herself. And these last few years, we've started to see glimpses again of the great champion, And on December 6, 2020, at the Challenge Daytona PTO Championship, we saw more than a glimpse. We saw the physical prowess and the mental fortitude and the emotional strength of one of the world's greatest back on top with a a dominating exhibition of how to race a triathlon. And listen, we've been friends for many years and I'm a huge fan of hers, not only as an athlete, but simply who she is as a person. So I'm excited to delve deeper into her journey and her process. So welcome and thank you for joining me on The Greg Bennett Show. Paula Finley, how are you? Hi, Greg. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. This is pretty oh, fun. I know. I'm, I'm excited to have you. It's. Uh, I wasn't sure. I, I knew you'd be busy since winning the race. Have you been able to come down uh, you, or you're still on cloud nine? <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely set in, but it's also been crazy busy, constant you know messages on my phone and people wanting to talk to me. And I, I'm loving all of it. It's just a, a whirlwind. You know, I haven't slept very much and uh, it's, it's pretty cool how many people watched the race and saw me win. So everyone who's had any part in my career over the last 10 years has, uh, has reached out, which is pretty cool. That is cool. And we were talking pre-show about how this year we've all been so desperate for a, a major a major event, a major championship, you know, and, and to finally have such, a, such an event at the end of the year that the whole world turns up. Uh, I mean, just how fantastic was that for you? Yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, everyone's been itching to race all year and and fans of the sport have been, you know, I think wanting to watch a race. So having a production of this level that the PTO and NASCAR put on together is unbelievable and allowed everyone to kind of follow along and share in the excitement of this one and only big race of the year. So to come out and win it is was totally unexpected and even more amazing since it was, you know, seen by so many people on on TV around the world. Mm. T- tell me about the preparation and the lead up. And I guess what I mean by that is it it wasn't your typical preparation and lead up for an event. There's all the uncertainty of, is it going to happen? Is there going to be a race? Um, The way that you can train and prepare, a lot of swimming pools were closed and and all of that. Tell me, where did you prepare and, and, and what was your mindset like preparing for this race? Yeah, I think the uncertainty of, of whether it would happen or not was the hardest part, just because training for a race of this caliber takes a lot of dedication and commitment and time and to have it potentially not even on the schedule requires, you know, it's, it's a completely different mindset than, than you'd have going into something like Kona without question or a world championship that was happening without question. So I was actually preparing in Canada, which also wasn't optimal because it was in the middle of winter. 
but <laughs> I hadn't uh, been home to see my family all year. So in September, when the forest fires got really bad in Oregon, where I live, we decided to pack up the van and take our chances and head up there and uh, do the quarantine, visit my family and kind of tough it out all winter and see if Daytona happened, we'd just prepare indoors. So that's what ended up happening. And it wasn't always enjoyable. But I think part of the kind of mental strength that you gain training inside, and especially on the style of course of Daytona, really played to my advantage. So although it wasn't perfect, it was, it was, it did the job. <laughs> well, I, I saw some of, you know, you guys, you, 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 your partner, Eric, and yourself do an amazing YouTube series called mm-hmm. That Triathlon Life that I do want to delve into a little bit later. But I was watching some of that and, and I watched it actually quite a while ago, but you guys were training in Canmore, Alberta. Yes. And it was okay. frozen over. I yeah. mean, we're not talking when <laughs> when we talk winters as an Australian, or right now I'm down in Florida, but it was proper proper winter. And yeah. but you're preparing for a race in 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 South Florida, where you know I was up at the race. The women's race was hot. It was it was pretty hot. Did did you yeah. feel like it was okay? I mean, training indoors does prepare you for the heat, I guess. But how a did you? A little bit, yeah. We basically made. I mean, there was three of us training in the garage when our friend came and joined us. And so we created kind of like our own little heat humidity chamber in this garage. So it was not that I was heat trained in any way, but Canadian winter, it can start anywhere from like January to November. And unfortunately this year it came early. So we were basically like the snow was covered or the ground was covered in snow October 1st. And that took away any opportunity to ride outside. And then I'm personally pretty, pretty hesitant to run in the snow just because of the risk yeah. of falling and getting injured and doing any hard sessions when your muscles are that cold and it's below zero, I think is a little risky for me. So I just opted to do everything indoors. And uh, yeah, it didn't, I mean, it was pretty cold in Florida the week, relatively cold the week of yeah, the race. For Florida so, it was cold, yeah. Exactly. And the morning of the race was a little chilly. So I don't think it hurt me. I don't, it wasn't a particularly hot day. It was sun. It got sunny at one point, but um, not to the point where it affected like hydration and things like that. So I think it was fine, even though, yeah, the cold is just really, really hard to deal with. (laughs) I don't (laughs) know how you do it. (laughs) The days get short and it's cold and dark Mm -hmm. and and, and that's the, the mental energy to just keep going. It's not easy. (laughs) Yeah. If we had known a hundred percent Daytona was going to happen, we would have drove down to Tucson and just trained uh, trained yeah. there to get ready. But there was just the uncertainty. We didn't want to get down to Tucson after a 30-hour drive and then have the race canceled. So yeah. we were like not willing to risk too much, you know. And did you – you didn't get any pre-race – pre-races i think i saw on youtube you were heading to iron man 70.3 texas and that got canceled yeah. like literally last minute right last so minute yeah yeah we had planned on going to texas and it's two it was two weeks before daytona and it was more just for like a rust buster like let's try to do a yeah. full half distance and all consecutively at a hard effort and <laughs> um yeah we packed our bikes we were ready to go flying on uh, thursday morning and then wednesday night pretty late like 11 p.m we got an email saying it was canceled so we were disappointed (laughs) but you know we'd we'd already started to taper and we were kind of counting down the days of indoor riding and then had to wrap our head around doing another week of of indoor riding but it was okay it just was 
a little bit of a blow, but we just, this year's taught us to go with the flow pretty well, you know? <laughs> I think, I think everybody has, isn't it? It's like one of those things, like when I had Holly Lawrence on the show, she's like, look, it's not because I'm injured that I'm not racing or, you know, my training's reduced. It's just because I can't and exactly. nobody can. So yeah. it makes me, I'm actually, I'm okay with it, you know? Yeah, it makes it easier for sure when everyone's yeah. in the same boat. <laughs> and and then the race itself, let, let, let's think about that. So the field that turned up really was some of the greatest women from all around the world. We, we're yeah. missing maybe, I mean, Lucy Charles, I saw what happened to her. I don't know if she was on her way or she tested positive and then she tested negative. Um, but I know that you raced her on the course in 2019 yeah. and you outrun her. Um, but really, we, you weren't missing. It was a stellar, stellar field. And, yeah, and, yeah. and sometimes when you look at those races, sure, we can talk about the money and that kind of things, but what the money does is bring the best out of everybody, right? And mm -hmm. that's what makes the race win so special. You beat everybody on the day that they all wanted to have their best day as well. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's and, the cool thing about a championship race of any sort, right? It brings out the best in people at their peak fitness. But but even this distance, I love the distance because it really did sort of bring out the short course ITU Olympic focus athletes, the Ironman athletes and everybody else in between. And you... It's hard to even put you in a who are you in terms of an athlete. I mean, we, we, not Ironman yet, but you, you've still got the ability if you wanted to to have another crack at the Olympics, and we can talk about that later. Mm -hmm. But you've also these last two to three years really specialized in the the 70.3 distance. Yeah. Is, is that a distance that you feel more comfortable with? Um, I prefer the Olympic distance and I prefer racing Olympic distance. If there were non-draft mm. Olympic distance races still in the U.S., I think I would enjoy that a lot more. But um, I, I'm coached by Paulo Sousa, who has a pretty successful group of ITU athletes. And honestly, Eric and the training he gives Eric and I is very similar to what they do. So with the exception of some longer rides and different training that way, but we still do the same swim program. We do very similar run sessions. So I feel like I still train a bit like an ITU athlete. And I mm. also think that the sport is heading in the direction where you do have to have that speed if you want to be successful at 70.3 because it's getting so fast and people are coming over from from ITU and racing yeah. the, the, the long course stuff now. So yeah, the distance was unique. It wasn't quite a half, but I would classify it as pretty much a 70.3. It was no, almost sure. there. Yeah. Like you, I I, re I really wish someone, and maybe it's up to me to do it, but bring back a, you know, a big professional non-drafting series. Like we had the Lifetime Fitness series, and then yeah. there was the Ironman fifty-one fifty series that, that was there for a little bit. And you know, so Lifetime Fitness. Anybody that's listening, Brahma Karate, you were amazing <laughs> for many many years. But mate, it's time to to come back and let's build up. You know, Minneapolis, Los Angeles, Dallas, Chicago, New York, all of those. Yeah, um, you did that series. I remember that was. I spent my life doing that. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, for me, I was very fortunate. If I look back and go, and, you know, had my ITU years and Olympic years and that kind of thing, and then it was kind of a a reasonably easy shift um, mm -hmm. into the non-drafting Olympic distance, which like you was my favorite distance. And, um, I think towards the end I, of my career, I kind of did 15 or 16, 70.3s. Um, and they were good, but I just, I think I liked their shoulder to shoulder racing just a little bit more. And maybe yeah. that's just because it's our engines are like that. Maybe you're, you're similar, you know, you, um, I mean, you did the Beijing international triathlon. What was that? 2017. And you won yeah, that two years ago, but honestly, every, Every 70.3 and even that Beijing race, I've never been head-to-head -head with anyone. It's always so such big gaps that 
I kind of finish wherever I start the run. So whether that's at fir- first or fifth or whatever it is, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. it seems like the race is pretty decided after the ride a lot of the time. So I do really miss the ITU days like back in 2010 and 2011 when I won the WTS races that came down to the last 500 meters with uh, Lisa Norton and Helen Jenkins. And it was very dynamic, exciting racing. And this is a little different. Um, the men's race in Daytona, I think, was a little more exciting in that way. Like there were a lot of lead changes, stuff like that. But the women's race was a lot more spread out. I mean, you mentioned Lisa Norton. I love that. You know, 10 years later, here you are both on the start line racing yeah. shoulder to shoulder. I mean, was it great to have her with you on the bike? You both swapped leads and, and yeah. had a turn. Yeah, yeah. Was that good? Lisa was actually there last year as well. So both of us had ridden the, the course before in a race scenario. So I know I've been following her sort of year and she's done a lot of uh, time trial road cycling races mm. like that. So I knew that if I had her in sight that I was in a good spot and I wasn't sure what her, I heard she had an injury on the run, but wasn't sure. So it is really cool to, you know, Nicholas Spierig was in the race mm. and Lisa Norton and Jody, St- Jody Simpson and all these people that I raced in 2010 were still racing just at this slightly different distance. So it is really cool to have people still in the sport. Um, mm. And then also in the stands, like Laura Bent, your wife was there and uh, I raced her a lot too back in the day. So just the whole community of people there that I knew from back in the ITU days was pretty neat. Yeah. And look, look, let's look at the race because you never look like you're in trouble. I don't know how you felt and you can tell me, but it (laughs) it looked like you were in fourth gear and you always had that fifth ready if you wanted it. Is that how it felt to you? Yeah, it, it did actually. I mean, I don't want to say that it felt easy, but I never oh, no, felt No, you can't do that. that because otherwise people call you arrogant and everything exactly. else. I've, no. I've had that, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> it felt, it was, it was hard, but I felt, I think part of the reason it felt so aerobically easy is because I trained at altitude in Canmore and coming down, I've trained at altitude before, but it wasn't as much of a profound difference as this time. I came down to Florida and it felt like I always had another gear. I could go harder. I was riding my 70.3 watts, but my breathing was very under control. So I didn't feel like I was ever on the edge of, oh, I'm going to crack or, oh, I'm going to break down. So that was a cool feeling. And maybe I need to do more altitude training. In the future. <laughs> well, I mean, the altitude of Campbell was about 5,000 feet or, or, or something. It's not too, it's not it's super not, high, right? No, it's not like Flagstaff. It's, a, it's almost similar to Boulder actually, but I think yeah. that's almost good because you can still get some intensity. It's I not agree. so limiting, but you do get also the effect of being a little bit higher. So your recovery is not really compromised, but it is definitely a noticeable difference going down to yeah. sea level. So I, I think it's a good height. Yeah, I think we our neighbor um, up in Boulder, Frank Shorter, yeah. um, who won the, what was it, the 72 Olympic marathon. Um, when we asked him about altitude training, he said, Greg, we, the way we look at it is at 5,000 feet, we call one increment. And then every thousand feet after that is an increment. Mm-hmm. And so the effects of altitude training, obviously the the higher you go, the more you have to recover and the effects of you. So right at that, I really do think that 5,000 to 5,500 feet is such a good number yeah. to do most of your workout. Now you can always go higher to do bits and pieces or whatever if you want, but it's like, it's, uh, I must think the uh, Colorado Springs at the Olympic training center is over 6,000 feet. And, and now you're at two increments, you know, right. and it's now you've got to be even more aware of the effects of the altitude. So exactly. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it cuts into your recovery and you can't do as much speed workout and hit the higher mm-hmm. numbers that you need to. So yeah, training at 70.3 Watts or 70.3 run pace 
at 5,000 feet, I think, um, is, is a really good thing. It's appropriate. And it worked well for me. It really did work <laughs> well for you. And yeah. when did you feel like you, you actually had it and be honest, you know, did you feel like when you got off the bike and you're like, okay, I've got several minutes here, just yeah. be patient, be calm. What, what was it in your mind? Uh, to be honest on the bike, I didn't know where anyone was in terms relative to where I was. I knew Lisa was right behind me. Cause I could see on the, um, the lap splits that her name would pop up right next to mine. Um, <laughs> so for the first 10 laps, I knew she was there, but then I assumed that she, there was 10 girls behind her, you know, like Holly yeah. and Nicola and, and Jody and all the girls that I came out of the water with were right there also. So when Lisa came past me at, on the 11th lap, I was sort of expecting a whole train to pass me. And I, I didn't look back ever, so I had no clue, but <laughs> I just tried to like keep Lisa within the, tw- you know, within sight. I didn't want to push the draft rules at all because I knew that would ruin my race if I had a two minute penalty. Mm. So mm. kept her as a carrot. And then coming off the bike, Talbot told me we had three minutes on Holly and Anne. So um, I still wasn't super confident, you know, three minutes, mm. you can easily run that down in a, in a 18 K run, especially if you're Anne hog. So mm. I, I just went out and tried to hold pace as best I could. And I didn't want to go out in a panic and run faster than I could hold the whole time just because they were chasing me down three minutes is a good buffer but it's not a guarantee so I didn't know till the last almost honestly half lap doing some calculations in my mind that if okay she's actually three minutes down then I I could probably slow down quite a lot and still have it so so I still went ran hard to the end you never know but um I was a bit uncertain I I, all I could do was keep doing what I was doing and not worry about Mm. what was going on back there so it's funny, isn't it, when you when you do have a lead and you, you're trying to do math, mm-hmm. and I find math is your friend, and if you can do it quickly, yeah. it's amazing. Okay, I've got a three-minute lead with 6K to go. Okay, that means I've got, you know, 30 exactly. seconds per K. Well, really, yeah. they're going to have to run this pace. This is how I work it anyway, and I'm kind no, of going, I'm okay. the same. Yeah, yeah. I was, <laughs> I was running 340s per K on – Wow, that I is fantastic, a- by the way. Phenomenal running. <laughs> oh, Good you. work. And I had a three minute lead uh, with 4K to go. So I thought I could slow down to five minute Ks or she'd have to be running under three minute Ks to catch me. And that put my mind at ease a bit. And yeah. But you also never really trust the splits you're getting. Like people were telling me different numbers and <laughs> it's true. the photographers giving me splits. So who knows if they're even accurate, you know, they're, they're doing their yeah. job. <laughs> so that, you can't really true. trust anyone. <laughs> that, that's, that's true. And then, so running down the finishing straight, a couple of hundred meters to go, um, career highlight, or how did it measure up to some of those world series events 10 years previous? Um, it's hard to say those, there were definitely more people at the world series yeah. races back in the day. And the sprint mm. finish that I, I always had a sprint finish with people. So it was a different dynamic. It was not as much time to enjoy it, you know, just like yeah, full yeah. on sprinting to the end. But this one, I could kind of slow down and take it in a little bit. And there were a good amount of people there just because the, the age group race was right before us. So people stuck around to watch. So there was still a good atmosphere. Mm. And knowing that it was broadcasted, I think I was also thinking about my parents watching and my friends watching back home. And that was cool as well, knowing that it was available for people to yeah. see yeah 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 it's funny isn't it? i mean being up there as a spectator it actually wasn't super spectator friendly for the people on course it's a, yeah. it was kind of it was good if you planted yourself in front of the big broadcast screens that they had yeah um but and then turn around as you guys kind of came past the other way but right. um uh, 
different to the World Series, you know, World Triathlon Series events where they have sort of the stadium and multi, multi, multi laps. But Mm -hmm. for a long course race, it really was spectacular that you did get to see you guys so many times. It did get a little confusing with the lapped athletes. Did you find, were they ever a problem for you, you know, because you lapped quite a few, I think, yeah. Yeah, I would say that was even like the biggest challenge on the bike was navigating people that we were lapping and not, Mm. because you could still get a drafting penalty on someone you were lapping technically. Yeah, so yeah. you had to go three meters wide from these people that, uh, that you're, that you're passing and then huge surge to get past them. Like th- sometimes like 350 Watts just to go by yeah. because you have this 40 second limit that you can do it in. And a lot of the times Lisa would go past someone and then they would try to go with her. So I oh, no. like surge <laughs> extra to pass them. So it did get in the way a little bit, but it also kept it interesting, you know, there was something to think about and kept me engaged. <laughs> Otherwise That's it would true. just be so boring. So I didn't mind it. If you look at my power file, there are quite a few spikes from from going around everyone, but I think that's okay. It kept it it kept it interesting and it kept me honest and like yeah. kept my power up almost because I didn't get bored and kind of let my mind drift. I constantly had to be paying attention. Well, what do you think about I was thinking about it post race about, you know what to do with the lapped athletes, you know, I mean, in, in the ITU, you know, they get taken off the course, um, mm-hmm. here, you know, do they, should they be taken off or should they maybe be told to move to the side or, you know, slow down, you know, that they shouldn't get in the way. Or, and I was thinking, well, maybe, you know, with it being a four kilometer loop, you're looking at what, six minutes or so per lap. Yeah. Um, maybe if they added one kilometer, like, you know how the run, you went through the center a little bit. Maybe if they mm-hmm. added one kilometer through. So make it a five-kilometer loop. And now we're looking at maybe eight minutes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And at eight minutes, I think people should be taken off the course, especially yeah. with only a, a two-kilometer two swim. Um, that's not you, – if you're losing two or three minutes in a swim over two kilometers, you're more of a duathlete than you are a triathlete anyway. Yeah. But yeah. what do you think? What are your thoughts uh, on that? That's a tough one because I – I mean, I – lap Nicola Spierig and she ended up finishing 10th so it's Mm. it's hard to say like if she was pulled out of the race she actually ended up having a really good race and ran really well so that's true um I agree if the lap was longer maybe the lap was longer yeah there'd be less of that going on but it loses the dynamic like you'd almost have to leave the track and then come back in or something to to grab two extra k so I don't I don't necessarily think moving out would be a good idea maybe being stricter about that person having to actually sit up and uh put the brakes on for a second if they're being overtaken or mm-hmm. if there's it's a really tough call i mean i think it actually impacted the men's race more than the women um but yeah i don't yeah. i don't know a, a good a good solution <laughs> well i was talking to alistair brownlee post-race and 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 they lapped uh michael weiss i think mm-hmm. and he then kind of was in their group and in the way and like the, for yeah. the, the remainder of the ride. And I mean, I was thinking about it. Well, hell, if I, for a hundred grand, I'd be finding a domestic, somebody that can't swim very well or whatever. And I'll say, I'll see you in 4k. And then totally, you pace yeah. me for the next, you know, 76k that I have left. Exactly. Um, yeah. I think that that's an issue that you can run into with, you know, allowing the lapped athletes be, be mixing up. I mean, yeah. that's how my, that's how my head thinks, which, you know, it's kind no, of like, that's interesting. I didn't even yeah. consider that, but it could in the future lead to, yeah, some domestic type of racing. So maybe the lapped athletes need to just completely drop back and not mm. interfere with what's going on. I, I don't agree. know how to regulate that, but there's gotta be a way, right? Now, now listen, let's move on. You've made a hundred grand. 
Are you going to upgrade the van, the Dodge Sprinter? <laughs> I, I mean, the, I anybody that hasn't seen it, the YouTube channels um, that you guys have, and uh, you do such a good van life kind of videos. Uh, yeah. What are you, What are you thinking? Um, I don't. I love a van. I don't feel like we need a new van. Um, <laughs> we actually really want to move to Bend, Oregon. So Eric and I are like looking at real estate every single day now. Not that a hundred grand is enough to do that, but it definitely helps with the down payment. So yeah, it's. I don't know what I'm what what I'm going to spend it on. The van Eric built out himself, so we've he's kind of made it perfect for us and what we need. And it's definitely not like a top of the line hundred thousand dollar camper van, but it has. <laughs> everything that we need to travel and the dog is happy and we could put five bikes in it. So it's, it's pretty awesome. And, uh, maybe someday we'll upgrade, but for now it works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I think between this win, obviously the prize money is nice, but I think it's more than that. I think this yeah. really shows you as, okay, Paula Finley is not just back, but you know, the way you raced, I think any sponsor that's looking at 2021 and thinking, who do we back? you know, that we want to have our brand show and not only, not only somebody winning a race, but somebody that has a history, has a story and you guys are delivering such amazing content on that triathlon life. You, mm -hmm. Eric, Eric Lagerstrom, for people that don't know, is just a magician. He's one of the best men I know. He's just such a wonderful guy and, and doing incredible work. Mm -hmm. I think between all of that, you guys have an amazing package for, for sponsors to get behind. So yeah. I think you should be looking at Bend, Oregon and, and, um, and going up in dollars when you think about it because <laughs> I think any sponsor, <laughs> yeah. any sponsor listening, you should get behind you guys because I love what you're doing. Oh, um, thanks, Greg. I mean, and, it's, and I yeah. Go on. It's, yeah. it's easier. I would think so too, but it's, it's a tough world. Like the sponsorship mm. world is so tough. And before this race, I was like having no luck with getting anything. So it's – yeah, it's interesting. And I, um, I, I do feel like our social media is super valuable and then having a race like this should, should add to the package, but yeah, it's still tough. I don't know. The times have changed in triathlon, I think. Well, you're doing but, everything you can. Exactly. At the end of the day, it's like in my day, you just had to perform, win a race. You got a magazine cover, uh -huh. you know, you had to be able to speak reasonably well, but yeah. Uh, that you, you do all of those things plus you guys are doing the one thing that i was terrible at is you know doing the the social media and now the youtube channels and, mm -hmm. and these things which are even next level well you guys right. are absolutely <laughs> owning that i don't know what else you can do so yeah I'll, that's the thing yeah. we're just we're doing what we can and it's fun we enjoy it that's the other side of social media is yeah. if you hate it and you don't like it it's hard to do but we truly enjoy like taking photos and eric's really loves the video. He gets so much satisfaction from putting out a good video. So that really, really helps with making it part of our job is the enjoyment that we take from it. So, yeah. Well, you also have um, the apparel. You guys have an amazing line of that triathlon life um, apparel, beanies yeah. and shirts and things that people should go check out. And you can go to, I'll, I'll put in the show notes, but I'm going to mention it now as well, thattriathlonlife.com. And you can you can buy all your apparel that you got there. Just yeah. fantastic, fantastic work. So congrats to both of you on what you're doing there. Um, you. Very, very impressed on my end. And, <laughs> and I'm not sure who your manager is, but um, they need to be in full full gear right now and full speed ahead <laughs> yeah. no honestly all these things have stemmed from just not racing this year like we've had extra time so it's been a little yeah. silver lining of covid is uh being able to start all these other projects yeah that's fantastic well let's let's wind the clock back a little bit and um tell me when did you first sort of find your passion for endurance sports and uh how'd you get into it um 
Well, both my parents are athletes. My mom was a national team rower and my dad <laughs> was a runner. So that it was kind of in my genetics. And I started competitive swimming when I was 11. So not super young. Some kids start when they're like five or six, but that was sort of my intro to endurance sport. I was actually a dancer growing up. Uh, I did like tap jazz and ballet for about 15 years. So that was my first love. And um, I had came to a fork in the road where I had to pick between swimming and dancing. And I was in grade 10 and I thought I had a lot more of a future in swimming. So I chose that over dancing. But I do think dancing helped form my like um, success with running. Like it was very, makes you a strong, well-rounded, flexible, you mm. know, athlete, I guess. So that did help with, uh, with my athletic background. (laughs) That's awesome. I I love, I love that you can see actually how it helped with your running and just, I always, I've described running as the most pure form of dance that there is, right? For me, when you're running and, and, and the, you know, when you get so fit and I can't remember it very well anymore, but when you get so fit and, and your timing of your foot on the ground, and the placement of the foot feels right. The breathing works with the, the, the arm hold feels right. And you can feel almost your, your brain just tapping the top of your skull because the, the, the timing is just so perfect. And that's totally. why I kind of think yeah. that running is like the most pure form of dance. And the fact that you had a, a, a dancing background, it makes even more sense. Yeah, did, you ever, <laughs> did you ever think about rowing then as a sport? Rowing um, like my mom did? I. Yeah. I sort of did, but growing up in Edmonton, it's like a really, really limited season to do that. So I didn't really take interest in it. Um, my brother's a rower, so my mom got one child that, that was. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, my mom put us all in competitive swimming to try, and I'm the only kid that stuck with it. My brother and sister hated it. So that's kind of what uh, ultimately led me to triathlon. I formed my best friends in swimming and that's what kept me going every day. Um, I loved swimming, but I also loved the social aspect of Mm -hmm. it. And my best friends to this day are still all from my swim team when I was, when I was growing up. So it's a pretty cool kind of community you build when you're going to the pool at 5am together every single day. (laughs) What what level of swimming did you get to and and what stroke were you swimming? Um, I swam through my first two years of university, so collegiately, I guess, um, but oh. in Canada. And 400 AM was my best best event. <laughs> I was oh, never ouch. amazing. Like I, I think I qualified for my national time, but I was never on the podium or had any Olympic ambitions or hopes as a swimmer. There's it's just too many people that do it, and the, it's such a deep competition mm. at that oh, level. I- I know Laura, Laura always describes it as, you know, she she basically grew up as a runner and swimmer and she's always like, yeah, swimming, it's basically dun dun. So the first dun is you're an Olympic champion and the second dun is you suck. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like the the mar- margin. margins are so small right. between greatness and being very poor. And, it's just, and there's so many swimmers. So when did you sort of find triathlon and realize that this is going to be, was a strength of yours? Um, my, I think it was 12th grade, my track, I had started getting into running at that point, just basically running. I'd show up at the meets and race. I didn't really train. I just had all my fitness from swimming, but, Mm. um, my, the running coach at the time was also sort of a tri coach and he, his name is Glenn Playfair in Edmonton. And he recommended I get a road bike and said, if you do a triathlon, you could qualify for the junior world team. And I was like, what? That's crazy. There's no way. Like I was, I wasn't that good at swimming. So um, but I listened to him and I got a road bike for Christmas 
and did my first like local kind of fun race that spring and then qualified for junior worlds that summer in Lausanne, Switzerland in 2006. You may have been there. <laughs> uh, yeah. I actually, I didn't do Lausanne world champs, but I think Laura okay. did. Yeah. And yeah. Th- th- was that your first year of tries then? And you qualified for the team? It was. Yeah. I was racing as a junior, so that was my yeah. first year in the sport, but I, yeah, was pretty successful pretty quickly as a junior. So yeah. yeah. Well, you came 13th there. That yeah. was an amazing, amazing start. And then were, were you like the rest of us where triathlon then was like, it was a bug and you were addicted <laughs> and, and you couldn't step away? I wouldn't say that. I mean, I still pretty kind of identified myself as a swimmer. Like I continued yeah. to swim and train with the, the university team. So swimming like eight times a week and I'd just go run three times a week and I hardly ever rode my bike. So I was, the seasons worked out really well because school went from September to April and I could race collegiately and then the spring and summer I spent racing triathlon. So the split between school and then warm weather, able to train outside triathlon in the spring really worked well for me. And I did that for, for a couple of years. Well, having, um, the Edmonton world series event in your backyard for all that, what was called a world cup when we were doing it kind of in the, in the early nineties, did that have any influence on you wanting to do the sport? Did you used to go down and watch that or did you not even know about it? <laughs> no, I definitely did. And Simon raced after his win in Sydney. I think it was 2001, the World Championships were in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was five years before I started the sport. But it definitely must have planted a seed and at least made me aware of the sport and how cool it was. And I watched Simon win in Sydney on TV. So um, I actually, my parents were at a banquet in 2001 and saw Simon and got him to autograph the front page newspaper that he was on. So I had that hanging in my room before I'd even done triathlon at all. So it definitely impacted it. And it, Edmonton's a very, although it's cold and super far north, it has a good triathlon community like Paul Tischler, who was a 2008 Olympians mm-hmm. from Edmonton and Carolyn Murray, who also went to the Olympics. Cool. So a couple Canadian Olympic triathletes have come out of Edmonton, which is pretty random. But <laughs> well, the event, the event itself up there is still one of my favorite events. The crowd, the atmosphere, yeah. the lead up. I just think it's one of the most beautiful cities in the world to go for a run. Some of the running oh, yeah. trail systems that you have there yeah. along the river, absolutely stunning place yeah. to train. It is underrated. Um, it is it is beautiful in the summer. <laughs> yeah, it's just because of us, all of us weaklings that can't handle the winter. <laughs> there we go, no chance. Right. <laughs> yeah, and so when was it that you were kind of okay i i'm i've got some ability here i'm doing okay as a junior was there ever a point where okay i need to really you know pull the trigger and go all in here yeah and the timeline is a little little uh, vague in my mind i don't totally remember but i did compete at the vancouver world championships in 2008 as a junior and that was my last year as a junior before switching to u23 and it was around that time that i thought I needed to put school on hold a little bit and move to Victoria to be at the National Training Center. So I switched coaches. I was coached by Patrick Kelly at that time, Mm. um, raced at the 2009 Under-23 World Championships and finished third. And it was at that point that I thought, oh, maybe I have the potential to make the 2012 Olympics, maybe. So (laughs) I started, started taking it more seriously. And I still really value school and getting a degree, but I thought to myself, there's lots of time for that. I can take as long as I need to, if I need to take only two courses or take a semester off Mm -hmm. in order to train more effectively and in a better location, I was willing to do that. So that's kind of what I did is just slowly put more emphasis and focus on triathlon training and 
going to race a little earlier in the season and then put school a little bit on the back burner. Um, although I still slowly chipped away towards my degree and finally finished it in 2017. Yeah. 2017? Yeah, it took forever. Literally took 10 years. Yeah, but I got it. What what was your degree in? Um, It's in biological sciences. I've always wanted to go to med school and that was the pathway to get there. So very general, but also like covered all the prerequisites I'd need to get into med school. Mm. There's, (laughs) There's only a few freaks in our sport like... When I had Alistair Brownlee on, I don't know if you listened to that episode, but yeah. <laughs> like, so he was getting ready for 2012 Olympics. He was the favorite. It was at home Olympics. And he basically starts telling me how he was working on a master's degree at the same time in finance, a master's of finance. I was like, really? During like- 2012. And he said, <laughs> oh, I took, I put it on pause for, you know, three months or something. But, but yeah. he was coming from it more as for him, it was a great distraction. Yes. You know, yeah. to, with all that pressure and, and everything else. But exactly. there's not a me, not in a million years could I have done that myself. <laughs> and, and that's why I was <laughs> like, you, you freak. Yeah. Um, you, it's a delicate balance. But I do agree with the, not the distraction, but just having like something else to do. Because mm. if you're the, the time I started to become injured was when I took, put school on hold and started training more. And all I had to think about and do and um, focus on was triathlon. And I think that can be dangerous as a young kid who just wants to be faster because I would do extra runs and do extra bike rides because I didn't have school to study for. So I do think that even if it's just one course online or whatever it is, it is, um, it is a healthy thing for some people to have uh, that going on at the same time. Yeah. Well, tell me about that next phase then, because you, you moved to Victoria, Canada, which, you know, is the national training center, as you said, for, for the Canadians and an yeah. amazing part of the world to train itself. You know, Laura and I spent four or five years there ourselves. And yeah. who, who was then coaching, which squad and who were you coached by then during that phase? Sort of, I guess, what are we looking at? Year 2009? Was yeah, it about 2009, 2010. I was coached by Patrick Kelly. He was the development mm. coach at the time. So I was training with um, the Coates twins. I don't know, a lot of a lot of kind of U23 junior athletes, but we always saw Simon at the pool and Kyle Jones, Brent McMahon, the, the senior national guys um, were training kind of alongside us. So it was pretty cool to suddenly be in that kind of atmosphere where everyone was training for mm. the same thing versus in Edmonton. I was kind of the only triathlete running with runners and swimming with swimmers. So it definitely was a I think positive change in environment and Victoria is much more well suited to try training than Edmonton is. So from that perspective, it was, it was a really good thing. Mm. And then, and, but then the, then the progression really started to happen. We we leapfrogged to 2010 and Mm -hmm. boom, uh, winning world cups. And then by uh, London, 2010. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It was uh, the progression happened quicker than I ever thought it would. And, um, I don't know, it was, it's good and bad. I mean, it was, as soon as I won that race in London, all I wanted to do was keep racing WTS races, but I was only 20 and I still had to, you know, be able to manage myself to not, to not get injured, but suddenly had attention from sponsors and attention from the media that I'd never had experience dealing with at that level. So I think there was a lot of, although I tried to kind of diffuse it to, to people around me, um, when you're doing well like that, everybody wants a little piece of the pie. Mm. And I had like, suddenly I was working with a sports psychologist and a doctor and a physio and a chiro and a massage. And there was just like such a, a huge support team around me that it was overwhelming, I think. And looking back now, I think I 
it was a bit too much all at once. <laughs> well, well, there was this kind of, I remember it very well, it was kind of the Canadians had a shock win with Simon Whitfield winning the 2000 Olympics. Mm -hmm. So now Canada's known as a triathlon nation, right? Yeah. And, and then it was like, okay, well, where's our next champion? And then, you know, Simon gets his silver medal in, in 08. Mm -hmm. But it's like this constant, well, where's our next? Where's our next? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it felt to me, and you can, we'll go into this a bit now, it felt to me as if the Canadian Federation, and they meant, well, I don't, I'm not knocking them, were kind of like, well, here she is. We got it. Yeah. Great. Right. Do everything we can and we're going to get a gold medal. This is fantastic. Yeah. And and they forget that they're working with a 20, 21-year-old young woman mm -hmm. who's been in the sport a few years, yeah. is trying to find a way. Tell me about how that all felt for you during that time. Um, I think they tried to shelter me a little bit from all of it, but um, I was also, I think, a difficult athlete to work with. Like my relationship with Patrick, my coach, started to deteriorate a little bit because he's very – He's a very shy, soft-spoken um, person, and I was pretty stubborn. And if I was injured, all I wanted to do was keep pushing through it and never take a rest. And so I blame myself a lot as well, but it definitely was, like I said, overwhelming to have suddenly any support I could want from anyone. Like I remember flying in the little like float planes over to Vancouver to see like the, the one of the best physios in Canada when I was hurt like several times a week. And just like an insane amount of funding thrown into me and partly due to Simon's success, uh, mm. putting triathlon kind of higher on the totem pole for support with Sport Canada. So as soon as there's an athlete that has the potential to medal, you get all the support you could ever want. And <laughs> that, mm. was, that was new to me. And it's, it's very backwards because as soon as, you know, several years later when I wasn't doing as well, that all goes away really quickly. So I just, um, it was a bit of a, like a, a fairy tale situation, but also at the same time, when I started to struggle and be injured and anemic and not feel well, I felt a lot of pressure because I had all this support around me that, you know, and pressure from the outside and from myself that, wow, I really have to like win a medal now at the Olympics after all this. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, good and did, bad. Did the love of the sport or your passions start to go with it or, or how was that? I don't think so. I, um, I think if it did, I may have not. I may not be doing the sport anymore, just because London was so hard, and ultimately at the Olympics, I didn't have a good race. But I never really stopped enjoying it. I I don't really remember like if I loved it at that point, and or if I was just doing it because I was good at it. And mm. um, still in my mind, I was like, I still want to go to school and like be a doctor, and I don't want this to be my whole life. And at that point, in you know, in 2010, I hadn't qualified for the Olympics yet, so. I didn't really know. It was, it's hard to remember 10 years ago how I felt. And I'm so good at putting blinders on and forgetting all the <laughs> shit that happens. And I still do that when something's wrong. Like I, I just forge ahead and look at the next thing. And that was a downfall a little bit, but it also makes it hard to remember exactly, exactly yeah, but what happened, you know? It's probably made you stronger and, and um, you're definitely very mature now at understanding expectations your own and others um mm -hmm. you know for me it took marrying well meeting laura marrying laura to help me because i was quite an emotional athlete and it took mm -hmm. me someone as grounded as laura to help me kind of i don't know i i found i had many years there at one point where the sport had become work 
Yeah. And and I'd lost my fun and passion. And it was actually moving to Victoria, Canada, where I actually got a lot of that fun and passion back. But mm-hmm. that combined with meeting Laura in that 2000, 2001 period was like, okay, this is why I'm doing it. And it really yeah. became enjoyable again. And and I found when when I went to go training and racing and was in really enjoying what I was doing and removing other people's expectations and trying to just manage my own, it really became fun again. Did you have a point in your last 10 years where that all happened for you? Yeah, I think similar to you. It's when I met Eric three years ago and started mm-hmm. training with him and um, just a very different approach to racing. And at that point, I didn't have external pressure from anybody. Like no one ex- was expecting me to win any races or do well. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it was only my own pressure that I was putting on myself. So it did bring kind of a new light to training and I changed coaches at that time. I changed my environment and a lot of it comes down to, like you said, you moved to Victoria and started to enjoy it. It's the people that you put, put around you. So having Eric every day to train with and bring kind of a different attitude to the sport and, um, really flipped my switch, I think. And it took a couple of years, but finally I was able to kind of put together a performance that, that was, um, similar back to my results back in 2010. A quick mini break, I really want to encourage you to do something special for yourself and sign up to Athletic Greens and get a free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase by visiting athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. So when did you and Eric meet? Was that Beijing 2016, 2017? When yeah, did you it was guys in Beijing. Meet? I don't know how you – yeah, that was exactly where. We we knew each other before that just from racing ITU, but that's where we really started chatting because you know Beijing International Tri. You're like kind of there all week with the same seven people and chatting on the buses yeah, and everything. Yeah, yeah. So that's where we really started to to talk, yeah. Well, well, that's where I really first met Eric myself, I think. It was back right. in uh, yeah. 2015 and I, I – I think uh, Eric ended up running me down with about 800 meters to go. I was yeah. so bummed. <laughs> but he'd won Alcatraz that year and I managed to get a gap on the bike and then he outran me. I think it was 2015. Yeah, and, uh, he was fit right, that, right at that time. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> a bastard. But anyway, um, and I just remember thinking, and we sat, like you said, the, the seven men, seven women invited and you all do everything together for the week. And yeah. you, all, you, you all become quite close and, and you get to know each other very well and I remember leaving that trip in 2015 in particular and just think, wow, I really, he's a great guy. And he, like you said, I think he, he's a very grounded guy and he gets it and he's a very smart man. And mm-hmm. I think he's, he understands how to take the intensity and wrap it up. So it's, you're intense when you need to be, but then you can kind of go and enjoy everything else when you need to at other times. Yeah. So I'm really glad you guys found each other and um, that that's exciting moving forward that you have each other because I think what I want to talk about sort of now is your your team and your relationships and, and how important they are to you because none of us can do it on our own. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you mentioned something earlier that I want to kind of talk about. It, it is funny how when you're on the top of the world – everybody's there for you yeah. but when you need them most when you're, when you're trying to get to the top or you're on your way out nobody's crickets. there yeah <laughs> yes. exactly yeah how, how do you think you can manage that going forward you know being that you know I, i'm hope i think the best years are still ahead of you i really do if okay, you want them yeah. but um how do you manage your team and who's who's a part of your team now um i think a lot of that um 
willingness to jump in and support comes from being involved with the Federation and Triathlon Canada and doing 70.3 long course now. Um, I have a much more control over my career. Like Triathlon Canada is not knocking on the door saying, here's all the support. So I have a pretty small team um, coached by Paulo Sousa. I have Eric Mm. to train with. And honestly, this year we haven't really gone to see any physios or chiro or massage just because of COVID. So a lot of it's been done just kind of our little little group of coach and then Eric to train with. So um, Mm. I think that's almost better for me, like keeping it super simple and yeah, this year has just been strange because we haven't put all of our focus on training. There's been so many other things and it's felt almost like, you know, a 50% reduction in, in training volume in total. So um, I think yeah. it's important to have a good team around you. Like obviously my parents are very supportive and I'm really close with my my sister and my brother. So those family connections are good. But in terms of like a immediate IST as they call it in the triathlon Canada internal support team it's um pretty small <laughs> at this point yeah yeah it's it's interesting when you get to s- get rid of all the the the, the crap and, and just yeah. simplify it down to what okay who's who do I really need and and I think having the training partners massive yeah. I think even if you're not doing the same workout Laura and I, I always found just walking out the door with our run shoes on yeah and even if we warmed up together and did a different work there was something about the energy of the house exactly yeah don't get me wrong it wasn't all roses it's (laughs) it can also have the the opposite effect where you're both dragging your feet or you know it is like uh, yeah yeah uh, but it but it is amazing and we've touched on a little bit the the mental strategies and 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 some of the pressure and expectations and that kind of thing was there ever a point where uh, that, that that you felt about giving up completely from the sport or, I mean, because you went yeah. through several years of, of trying to find your way. That's how it looks like from the yeah. outside. I, yeah. And I don't mean to be putting words in here, but. No, it's true. Um, yeah. What was that like? I think it, uh, if I look back at the progression since London, I switched coaches several times. And every time I did, there was like this renewed hope and it wasn't, mm. it was pretty fresh in my mind, those 2010, 2011, 16 races that I did. So I always believed I could get back to that point. And so I was coached by Joel Filial right after the yeah. London Olympics, one of the best coaches in the world for ITU. And after that, Siri Lindley. So between Joel and Siri, I really was at a point where I wanted to stop. And I was looking for a coach to kind of renew my love and my excitement for the sport. And Siri was the perfect person for that. And I think without Siri, I may not have stayed in the sport. Like she just brings so much passion and energy and love Mm. into the training and it makes it so fun. So I moved to Boulder, trained with Siri for a couple of years. Um, So that honestly was like a bit of a turning point and my results were never fantastic. I mean, I was starting to get a lot fitter with Siri and I um, won a couple of smaller races, but always in the back of my mind thought that I was on the right path to getting back to where I was in 2010, 2011. So although there were moments of doubt, I was pretty good at, um, you know, changing my circumstance or changing coaches. Not that it's a good thing to jump between coaches uh, too much, but I think um, I did it at the appropriate times in my career where I needed kind of a fresh change and that brought some renewed hope. And then I would start doing well. And um, yeah, although I never had races like I just did on Sunday, I always believed I could. So that definitely helped keep me in the sport when I wanted to stop sometimes. 
Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, these coach-athlete relationships are just that, aren't they? I mean, they're, they're relationships. And, and sometimes yeah. it is worth spending some time with, with, with a coach for a while and seeing if you're the right click. Mm-hmm. And, and they might be the greatest physical coach in the world, but if, if emotionally you're not on the same page, yeah. then it may not be the right fit. And, and you needed a Siri Lindley in your life, and I've had Siri on this show, and you know you feel like going on and taking it on the world after spending an hour chatting with Siri. She's <laughs> right, just one of those exactly. one of those people that you need that recharge, and she's got it. I yeah. mean, this woman is absolutely what she's gone through even this last twelve months, and then she came on my show. I was like, wow, yeah, you are great. a special person. Yeah. Um, so I get it. I get it that you needed that kind of a really special person in your life. But when we look at these last three years, and you you mentioned it, you know. Finding the right man also was a was a huge thing to have, yeah. you know, you know, in in your life and get you back on back sure. on track. Are, are you working now? Um, you know, when you went into this race, did mm-hmm. you practice sort of mindset strategies or any kind of visualizing specifically? Not really. I was, uh, you know, the hardest part of this race was just getting ready to race in terms of logistics, like remembering all mm. the little things you need to race because we hadn't had practice <laughs> for twelve months. So. I'm like scrambling to find elastic laces for my shoes and a race belt <laughs> and all these little things that distract me from thinking about the actual race. And Eric had a bit of a passport scenario before the race, like his passport expired. He realized the morning of travel. So we were dealing with like a bunch of stupid things like that, that really like took my mind off of the race. And I, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing, but I felt a little bit like an amateur heading into it, like not prepared. I hadn't practiced with the socks I was wearing. I hadn't like little things I usually would check off and make sure we're totally dialed, I was a little rusty with. So yeah, looking back, maybe I would have been a little more like, okay, I need to sit down and visualize how this race is going. But no, don't I never change did. a thing. No, <laughs> I think you train in the middle of winter in Canmore or wherever it is for, for every race you do from now on, right, indoors, don't visualize. I know. <laughs> I'm like, I need to move to Canmore and just be there and train inside all the time now. But uh, I think there's different ways to get to that point. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm totally kidding. I love it though. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you get nervous on the start line still these days or how are you feeling oh, when you yeah on the start line this past race yeah so nervous and I'd been paying attention a little bit to the social media and the PTO hyped up this race so much which is good but also dangerous if you're an athlete looking at it too much because it puts I put pressure on myself seeing all the external expectations because people were picking me for a podium and I'm like why would you do that that's crazy I haven't raced all year no one knows how fit I am so that made me nervous just knowing that people were watching me a little bit. I mean, I wasn't a favorite to win, but I definitely had some eyes on me. So even, and then just not knowing how things would go in the race. Like I hadn't swam for six months in the spring. So never in my life. Six months? Was it six months you guys had out of the water? Yeah. Basically from April until like the summertime. Yeah. So September, (laughs) it was a long time and we did We did little, I mean, we did a bit of stretch cords and we would try to swim in the Columbia River in Portland a little bit, but it wasn't, it wasn't really helpful. So all those little unknowns of a strange year like this were, I didn't know if I could do 2K hard in the water. Like I was nervous about that. So yeah, I was definitely pretty, pretty anxious. But as soon as the gun went off, I relaxed pretty quickly. And I think that showed on my face a little bit in the bike and run. I never felt like anxious or, um, 
nervous while I was racing. So no. yeah. Well, I always found that. I, I don't know about you, but like as soon as the gun went off, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember how to do this. Right. You know, it's like this. And, and Laura tr- tried to help me and, you know, say it's, it's not, I'm not nervous. I'm excited. Yeah. She always changed the wording around. And yeah, I still struggled with that most of the time, but I love that she would say, I'm excited. I'm not nervous. I'm like, oh, well, that's very clever. You know, you're playing with the words, but I, I struggled <laughs> with them. But as soon as the gun would go, and, and that was one reason why both Laura and I had to keep racing because I got way too nervous watching Laura. And if you're watching as a spectator, you stay nervous until the person finishes. Right. Whereas at least the athlete, your nerves go once you basically dive in. Now, now you're thinking about, okay, arm turnover, where am I at? You know, what hips should I <laughs> yeah. get on and, and all of that? And exactly. it's not too bad. Yeah. Um, how does your training now compare, you know, now that you're in the golden 30s mm-hmm. um, to when you were 20 and winning those World Series events? Is it much different? Um, it's different because I'm the co- my coach is different. So I would say, like, volume-wise every week it's probably about the same. But I, I'm running less now and I'm biking more. So mm-hmm. I'm pretty aware of my injury risk and I know that it's I'm not the most like resilient runner so I need to be pretty careful and especially training with Eric if he goes for an extra run I need to like let that go and not feel like I have to go for an extra Mm. a a double run or a longer run or whatever he's doing so um yeah I do less intensity on the run and Paulo my coach is not he doesn't really like prescribe specific paces or specific power numbers it's a lot by like your zones and how you feel so that gives some opportunity to ease up or slow down based on how I feel without feeling the pressure of like, Oh, I need to hit three thirty per K on this repeat or else I failed. Mm. So mm. I think that approach has helped me a lot too, especially this year. And to be honest, the not swimming part, it, although it didn't help my swimming, I think it really helped the other two because swimming takes a lot out of you. And I find it's really hard to have a good run session or bike session after a hard swim. Um, so taking that whole element out of training really let me focus on the other two and go into sessions a bit fresher and um, feeling feeling better every single day just because, you know, mm. you don't have to go to the pool for an hour and a half. So that actually was a little bit of a, a silver lining as well to the pool closures was just like improving the other two sports this year. That's why our sport's so great, isn't it? Having the three sports so you can – I had uh, Dr. Dan Plews on and, and, and he spoke, you know, he won the um, – Kona World Championships for the age group and set a record for the age group at eight hours oh, 24. Yeah. yeah. Phenomenal. And, uh, and he said, yeah, you know, I had um, – I, I couldn't run because my, my glutes were really sore. And he finds out much later that it was a sacral stress fracture. Oh, and uh, but he said, you know, my bike really improved and it was the improvement that I needed to work on but never would because I was always had the other two. And yeah. I think sometimes, yeah, when you can kind of look back and go – I would have never taken four months out of the pool, right? you know, five, six, whatever it was, yeah. but did because I had to. And now, boy, did it help me, you know? And and I think even when I look at the race and people that haven't seen it, go go watch it. You looked so strong. Like your hips weren't moving on the run. There was no falter. Your yeah. foot strike looked comfortable. Everything was just in, in place and it just looked like you were strong and fit. You mentioned you've you've had a number of injuries. What, what if... What have you had throughout your career? Where where is your weak spot? Um, unfortunately, they're mostly stress fractures, and you know, like foot, hip, pelvis, um, a bunch of different spots. So I don't know what the cause of that is. I think a little bit of is of it is when I was in my late teens and early twenties, I was racing really well, 
didn't have a, a period. I like wasn't eating mm. enough. So all of that definitely impacts just your bone health in general when you're trying to grow into an adult. So um, I'm suffering a little bit the consequences of that now, but I'm definitely in a way healthier spot now with my nutrition and with eating more than I ever have, but also training better because of it. And just realizing that it took a long time to get over that, um, like fear almost of, you know, body image, things like that. So yeah, mm. it's, it, that's a whole broader topic, but yeah, definitely, um, because of my early success, I guess. And, um, being restrictive back then, I like definitely am more prone to, to breaking my bones. Unfortunately. Well, well- I think, I mean, you do touch on the thing, and I've mentioned about myself the body image type thing, and we all kind of, and, and, and especially I feel like in that short course stuff, it's all about, well, you know, if you're pound here, it's 30 seconds for the 10K type mentality. I'm not yeah, saying anybody's yeah. that. I'm just saying you, you kind of do it to yourself to some degree. Right. And, it's dangerous. And, <laughs> yeah. And, I, I, and I'll share it with you. And I know other listeners might have heard this, but I remember, I remember exact photos standing in front of noosa surf club or, or whatever and like, oh, please don't take my photo i'm you know it's mm-hmm. it's january i've had off season i'm fat and i'm unfit and i I've, I've looked at that photo recently i was like my goodness what you had a real issue yeah. you know what i mean it's yeah. it wasn't until now i look back and and you kind of go my goodness you got ribs sticking out you, <laughs> you, you idiot right. anyway i mean we all kind of go through that. How, how have you gone on top of your nutrition now? You say you're eating more. Yeah. Is it, are you follow any specific diet or is it just overall? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not an expert in any way. And I, I think honestly, Eric helps me a lot with it because he eats so much and I just eat what he eats. And um, I've worried less about it. Like I realized mm. that power mm. on the bike and being strong is way more important, in, mm. especially in 70.3 than being as thin as possible so you can run fast. It's very, you know, you have to balance it. And as soon as I took the stress away from that, I actually did get leaner and fitter. And um, it's amazing, isn't it's it? Like <laughs> an opposite effect almost. The more you worry about it and restrict yourself and end up in a deficit and hungry all the time, and then maybe overeating at the wrong times of day because of it, it just completely got messy for me, like for many, many years. So the other, the other part of it is just growing up, like going through your twenties, your body changes and you become an adult and, um, all of that too, just (laughs) naturally I like got bigger and got bigger hips and all these things. So it, it psychologically was hard for me too, because like naturally my running got slower and, um, I wasn't like the, the tiny little teenager that I was when I was running track in university. So yeah, it's it's a hard, it was a hard path, but I think I finally found a good balance between yeah, eating well, fueling well, fueling appropriately and never being hungry because I'm eating enough and in return able to train better and sleep better. You make so many great points in all of that. It's so funny, isn't it? The more we think about what we should eat and everything else, the more we basically the more we screw it up. It's like exactly. just back off for a second, yeah. <laughs> eat, your, eat, eat your meals, and, and get on with the with the training. If okay. if you could go back and and talk to a bunch of teenage kids, and I put you know boys and girls, men and women in the same boat, you know, with the with this whole nutrition. Obviously, I think women have a lot more other issues to deal with, but. Okay. What would you go back and and say for if you were guiding, you know, if there's a 17-year-old listening to this podcast right now in terms of how you should approach your career? Yeah. What would I say? Um, That's a hard one. I guess 
like, don't be, don't be scared of food. Don't think of food as like something that you get to eat because you're training. Think of it as your fuel to train. And I never, I would basically go for long bike rides and like not eat anything. Cause I thought that was the best way to get leaner. But in it's the opposite. If you fuel yourself properly throughout the ride, you won't be starving afterwards and, and make up for it with um, potentially, um, too much. So, um, just find some balance and also, also don't stress about it. Like when I was a swimmer, I didn't think twice about anything I ate. I would just like be starving all the time and <laughs> shoving food in my <laughs> all the time. So it's a little bit like when you get into the running side of things that it becomes a bit toxic sometimes, just even if it's the pressure you put on yourself to be, to be leaner and comparing yourself to other athletes. And that's another thing is if you're looking at other athletes that are on top and they're super, super lean and you're trying to achieve that, that's not always the healthiest way to do it. Everyone in triathlon, I think there's such a broad range of body types of people that are very, very fast and successful. So mm. there's not like a one size fits all type of um, body for this type for this sport. I think you have to be really strong on the swim and bike and then able to sustain that on the run. So yeah, don't compare yourself. Just uh train well and fuel properly and <laughs> that, that's brilliant team around you i mean it's no secret it's not that's not like um any secret advice or anything but well, uh, it's not a secret but it's something that it's great for us all to hear whether you're 17 or yeah, yeah. Or almost 50 um i mean it's just it's it's great stuff now you're loving managing your own career but if triathlon canada came back to you and said paula <laughs> Yeah. Tokyo 2021 is, you know, six, seven, eight months away. We need you on the team. We'll let you do it however you want. Mm -hmm. Would you take it? Uh, yeah, hundred percent. No question. Okay. If it was like, I didn't have to jump through any hoops and do this and that. Yeah, for sure. I would. And I talked to Barry Shetley about this the other day, because a lot of people are asking me about it and mm -hmm. I don't even know how to answer because I don't want to throw a tri can under the bus and say, they're the reason I quit ITU and, no, but, no, but that, that, but you, 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 the the federation and the way the system runs, it is very, very different in answering to people and all of that. I get it. Yeah, it's it requires a full commitment to work, to that style of racing because of the ITU points that are required to mm. even get a a ranking high enough to qualify. So even if Tricam said I could go, I don't have any ITU points to be ranked in the top. Oh, so then you got to chase that around for a bit. Yeah, yeah. I get so I'd it. have to go do some Continental Cups and maybe uh, miss the Collins Cup or something bigger like that in, in long course that I could definitely uh, make, yes. um, do well at. So it's it's really tough. I think if we all, all the Canadian women lined up right now and raced for a spot on the Olympic team, I'd have a good shot of it. But there's a lot more than just that, unfortunately. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Because uh, Emma Snowsill, when I had her on the show and we talked about sort of preparing for 08 Olympics, and she basically said to Triathlon Australia, keep out of my way. Mm-hmm. For 12 months yeah. and let me do my thing. Yeah. If I screw up, it's on me, yeah. but leave me alone. And, and we, you know, she went and won the gold medal. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's how I would love to approach it for you. Just go in and say, right, everybody, and it's not Tri-Can, it's a whole, everybody, just let me do my thing. Yeah. I'll turn up on July, whatever the date is, in Tokyo, and I'll be there, have a uniform ready for me and let me do my thing. Oh, um, but. Yeah. That would be yeah. amazing. I wish it was that easy. No, I wish it was too. And yeah, it'd be hard to get as many points as you need and flying all around the world again, trying to collect points. And uh, yeah. It, yeah. It, I mean, Emma was definitely in a different position because she would earned her 
the respect from the Federation had been racing well. And I haven't done an IT race since 2017. And to be honest, the racing has changed a lot since 2010 when I was winning. I think the swimming has gotten faster and I would struggle in that department. Um, it would, mm. you know, I wouldn't be going to Tokyo with much hope of, of a podium or a top five, um, just because of how, how much the racing has changed. So I'd have to up my swim a lot. And although I'm an okay swimmer, like it came out well in Daytona, it's a whole other level when you oh, put sure. in like Jess Learmonth and Flora Duffy and Katie Zafaris, it's, it's another minute up the road. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then you got to chase them down on the bike, you yeah, know, maybe yeah. you on your own, maybe you got help, but oh yeah. I know. I, I think, I think when we look at these last couple of years, I think the joy you're having in the sport, doing it with Eric, um, I think you found, you know, the way you need to be going, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, without jumping through all the, jumping through all the hoops and everything else. So yeah, tell me, I'm pretty happy. As we're kind of looking to conclude the show a little bit here, but tell me some of your favorite places to to train. Obviously, Canmore's at the top. <laughs> no, just kidding. Not in the winter, to be no, honest. No, no. It is in the summer, though. I mean, it's a pretty beautiful place and mm. lots of trails, mountain biking. The pool's brand new. But my my favorite place is probably, I'd have to say Boulder over the last 10 years, if I could pick places that I love the most. Boulder is at the top in terms of just ease of training. The road's there are easy. Their cars are used to cyclists. Um, I love rally sport, Aaron Carson, um, having the pool there and then the running's great. So really like Boulder, but also Tucson, Arizona is actually surprisingly (laughs) one of my favorites. It took us a while last year to get, get used to it and figure it out. But once we did and found the good roads and the good running and the beautiful pool, we, um, started to really love it. So I think we're going to head back down there in January and sort of set up camp for, for the winter in Tucson where the weather's always, always nice. <laughs> where, where is home for you? Is it going to be Bend? Is that what you're thinking? Where, where's home? Uh, that's kind of tough. Eric bought a, <laughs> <laughs> Eric bought a house in, in Portland two years ago. So that's kind oh. of in our home base and that's where I am right now. So although we haven't spent a ton of time here, it's been nice to always know we have a home base and, have stuff delivered here and Eric's sister lives, uh, lives in the basement so she can kind of watch the house when we're not oh. here. So it works really well, but it's not my favorite place to train. I think Bend is a little more, um, perfect setup for triathlon in terms of just ability to ride and pool access and things like that. So we also have lots of friends in Bend and I think that's a big part of picking a place that's good to train is having people to meet up with. And even if you're not doing a workout with them, I can meet up with Heather Jackson in Tucson for a, three hour long ride and it just makes it that much more fun and enjoyable is doing it with other people. So we've made a lot of good friends just through going to Bend and Tucson over the last couple of years. Heather Jackson's, isn't she delightful? I, I just oh, think I she's one her. of the most, most beautiful people on the planet. Yeah, um, that's a good yeah. <laughs> she, she, she's very special. What about uh, favorite sort of races or events? If, if some, if you said somebody came to you and said, Paula, look, I've got next year's a blank calendar and everything's going to be back to normal by the way next yeah. year okay. um <laughs> what what three events you know should i go do um top of my list without question is saint george which is great because 70.3 world championships are there this year but i've oh, always yeah. just had really good races there and the run course is brutal it's like hilly oh. and it's usually mm. super hot but for some reason i just like i really really like it the bike course is fun there's a big climb and a big descent, but it's not a technical descent. So I'm not a good technical rider. Like Nice was not a good course for me, but St. George is. So 
Definitely that one. I guess I would have to say Daytona because I've had, <laughs> I've had the greatest race days. in the world, everybody. <laughs> yeah, I truly, I truly do like it. I mean, it it might appear seem like it could be a boring race and a boring course from the outside, but I I really love it, and I'm a, like a I love riding the trainer, and I can prepare really well that way. So that's a good course for me. And third, I would probably say maybe Oceanside, just because. Mm. mostly of the atmosphere like it's the first race of the year it feels like a really big deal it's i love california um the course is kind of cool it goes through the military base and yeah those are probably my top three in terms of long course races um that's that's a pretty good three that's uh, and by the way daytona it's a spectacular place to put on a triathlon in a safe venue i mean yeah. you're within this four kilometer nascar circuit that's just absolutely phenomenal the hotels around there were top notch we, mm-hmm. we love where we stayed um, up there and i think it was a great location to do a triathlon and if you're a newbie on doing a sprint distance it's it, they got all kinds of distances there um and and you mentioned st george yeah that's if you're going to do st george anybody make sure you do your fit um the hills there are, <laughs> it's, they'll work you and that that run Whew, it is hard, isn't it? Up yeah. and down. <laughs> yeah, but some people do well. I mean, yeah, Daytona was pancake flat, but I prefer the hillier races and you know sitting up out of the bike a little bit and having a little bit more of a dynamic race uh, versus mm. flat the whole way. I, I get it. Yeah, I get it. So, what's next for you? What's the what's the plan now for you guys? And you know, can you make plans for next year still yet? Uh, well, we've become pretty good at making plans and then just like having them canceled. So <laughs> I think we're going to make plans and just cross our fingers and train like we did last year, like getting ready for maybe something, but not for sure. So you kind of don't know until maybe a month out if it looks re- mm. realistic or not. So we're going to, like I said, head down to Tucson in January and set up camp there. And I really like kind of staying in one spot for months instead of just like moving around constantly. So going to rent a place. And we actually got a dog this year, Eric and I, which really helped with our you know happiness and balance in life because he requires a ton of attention and walks and uh it's been really fun but it also adds a whole layer of complication to training complications and travel so (laughs) we have to consider him when we're picking our spots and places to go race um so yeah we'll be in saint in tucson and then probably oceanside will be my first race if that that's a go yeah yeah so you'll probably do oceanside and st george Start yeah, with I those think guys Collins Cup year. is also uh, on the schedule in, in May. That's another PTO race where they've got mm-hmm. like the international squad and the American and the European. So it'll be pretty unique and I don't fully what? understand, but it'll, <laughs> it'll Yeah, be what cool. distance and, and where is that going to be? Um, that's in Slovakia and I think it's oh, a 70.3 right. and you do it in a team format, but I need to look and see what exactly uh, – how it works <laughs> I don't really oh know. yeah yeah oh yeah you'll be on the um what is it is it a commonwealth team are, you, are the canadians uh, and australians together no yeah they are it's the internationals so oh internationals basically okay. european american and then everyone else is international so yeah australia canada new zealand all those people Good work. Yeah. and so this race by winning daytona this this year you've solidified yourself in into that i imagine uh, to be honest, I don't know if I'm uh, for sure in. I think that this race counted towards PTO rankings, but it's a bit I'm sure it did. I, I hope it did. It was the only race of the year. <laughs> the problem is they said they would freeze ranking, freeze the rankings this year. So I oh. don't know if they're making an exception for 
PTO, which uh, they, I think they should, but I don't know. Okay. Okay. So next, what about long term? What 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 do you what do you want to do in the sport? Um, a lot of people are asking if I'm going to do long like a full Ironman, a Kona, and I think I probably will. It's definitely not in my like short term two year plan radar, mm. but. Kona is like the big deal and the big race of, of the sport, I feel like. So it'd be fun to like do it at least once or twice seriously and see if I like it. I I personally think I'll thrive more in like a colder race. Like I'll have to go do Ironman Ireland or something where it's pouring rain, but <laughs> I do eventually want to do one. And then who knows how long the sport will, will let me keep going um, and how long my body will hold up. But this past Sunday was a bit of a confidence booster knowing that, okay, I'm 31 now and I can still race with the best people. So maybe I'll be in it longer than I thought. <laughs> yeah. I mean, still race. It was, you were, you were clearly, you know, in the place you should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this sport, you just, you know, throughout this conversation, I can just tell you just, you're in a great place, you know, and, and, and that's, that's probably the biggest part of all of this. You know, you can have the best training plan in the world, but if you're not happy, if you're not content, if your home life's not right, you know, there's a whole lot of things that you have to align, all your relationships and everything. And it just, it's been really great to just chat to you and just, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I've sort of, you know, we've known each other for quite a while. And, and, you know, last time I think we saw each other before Daytona was in Boulder at our house. Yeah, um, yeah. Probably four or five yeah. years ago. And, yeah. you know, just seeing you sort of grow out of that sort of time into who you are now. I'm, I'm just so excited for you and, and, and Eric because you're in it together. It's a journey together. Totally where, can, where can people follow you, um, you know, and all your stories and everything that you've got going on? Um, well, the, the best way is probably to watch the vlog if, if anyone has interest in that. There, we put them yeah. out every Sunday. So Eric, uh, we film in the week and then Eric edits and puts them together to release. And he, he didn't miss one all year for 2020 except for the day of Daytona. So there's plenty of content if you want to catch up on that. And obviously, we've got Instagram and Twitter and all of the things um, just under our own names. So you can follow okay. us there as well. <laughs> Perfect, perfect. Well, I'll put all of that in the in the show notes. Um, and and yeah, if you want to go to YouTube, it's called That Triathlon Life, or you can look up Eric Lagerstrom. Um, yeah. But they're they're all right there, and they are. They actually are very very entertaining. I enjoyed watching so many of them. So, congrats <laughs> to what you guys are doing. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. It's been a real thrill. Um, and I know you're busy, so I really appreciate it. No, this was super fun. It was. Uh, yeah, I appreciate you you asking me. So thank you so much. Of course, of course. Well, thanks everyone for listening. If you want to go to bennettendurance.com forward slash media for all the show notes, the timestamps, coupon codes, and all the links, uh, you can go there, bennettendurance.com forward slash media. All right, stay on the line. Thanks for that. Thanks a lot for listening to Be With Champions. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Be With Champions Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.